Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of the Next Byte podcast. Today on the show, robots that will help you hug loved ones from far away, an artificial leaf that can make fuel using sunlight, and spinal implants that solve back pain without any surgery. Roll the intro music. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Byte podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. Okay, let's go ahead and get started with Article 1. We're going to be talking about hugging robots. I... It's It sounded so bizarre when I first started reading this article. I was like, okay, like, where are they going with this? But it's actually got a really cool backstory. So Alexis E. Block was a master's student for robotics in, I think, University of Pennsylvania. And they asked her what she wanted to do as her thesis, like the main project that you want to work on during your years as a master's student. And she said, hugging mm-hmm. robots. Um, the reason for this is actually kind of heartwarming. Uh, her father had recently passed away and her mother lived like two and a half hour flight away. So she wanted to have a way where she could connect with her loved ones. And she thought that this would be a great idea. So she started working on it. And now she's a PhD student at the Max Planck ETH Zurich Center for Learning Systems. So even further from her mom in Wisconsin than she was before. That's exactly right. So she's been working on this product and it's a robot that hugs, and it's called Huggybot. Now, Huggybot has gone through some iterations. It is currently on the fourth iteration that, that it's being developed. But let's let's talk about what Huggybot is and what's really interesting about it. So, as you could tell, it's a robot that hugs. But what I thought was cool is that they've really dug deep into the mechanics of what a good hug should be, what a human hug should look like. So the robot has a body that's able to transform, like change its shape based on the person that it's hugging. It can change its grip based on the size of the person that they're hugging. You know, you want to make sure that you're not like compressing them to the point that you're crushing them. You want it to actually be like an enjoying hug. And they, they basically wanted to understand if people felt good about hugging a robot. And they did some trial tests. And Alexis said that People actually told them that they felt not only better about the robot, but they hugged the robot longer than they expected. That they saw like Whoa. this thing in introverts where they they thought like it was awkward to hug someone for a very long time, but because now it was it wasn't a person, it was a robot, they felt more comfortable with it. And that was super surprising to me, dude. That makes sense. So, like you you're not worried about giving a robot a bad impression because it doesn't have feelings or emotions, so you just hug away. That's exactly right. And that that kind of shocked me, but I guess it makes sense. I thought people would be more hesitant to like, I don't know, hug a robot. But it was it was really interesting to learn about that. And now they're iterating through the different um, the, the different models. And like I said, they're on Huggybot 4.0. Um, they want to start including these micro actions of hugging. So instead of just grabbing someone and waiting until they're ready to let go, you include, you know, patting on the back or like some gentle rubbing to really make it intimate. And... Um, they're making an app so that users will be able to control this thing and send hugs to their loved ones across the world. So like you mentioned, she's now at ETH Zurich and her mom is stateside. So she could be able to send virtual hugs. And like this is big for me because my family lives 13,000 miles away in Iran. 
So being able to interact with them somehow, like through a robot, it's never going to replace the actual human, right? But it's able to supplement some of that interaction and just be like, hey, I'm here for you. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Uh, my girlfriend Nellie and I just did four years of long distance relationship That's in tough. college. That I is tough. can't tell you how many times I just really wanted a hug. So something like this would have been cool. Also, I imagine, you know, a lot of folks are feeling like this after potentially being separated from loved ones during the pandemic. You know, what would you have done for a hug from someone that you're not able to see? This is, uh, you know, it's all it's fresh in all of our minds. So it's cool to see this technology. I'm also interested in how they're going into the granular detail to make sure that it really replicates a human hug and how it feels like to hug someone. And like you're saying, all the micro aspects of a hug, like every time my grandpa gives me a hug, he pats me on the back. And it'd be really cool to see something like that replicated in this hugging robot if you know we ever had to give each other a remote hug using it. You're totally right. You're totally right. And you know, hugging, it, it actually releases a chemical in your body. It's called oxytocin. Like it, it makes you feel better. The hormone. love hormone. Yes, the love hormone. So what they're trying to do with the study now, like the next step of it, is that they talked about bringing people and exposing them to some sort of stressor, like stressing them out, and then having them hug the robot, like a group of them hug the robot, a group of them hug an actual human being, and a group doesn't hug anyone. Then they want to gauge their heart rate and their oxytocin levels in their saliva to see... Um, you know, if, if they had the same level of that love hormone in their body from the robot in comparison to human beings, or if there was any change in comparison to the baseline of no hug whatsoever. Well, that's really cool. And I think it's interesting how they found a way to quantify how like that feeling after you get a good hug when you're feeling all powered up and, you know, that was a good hug. Um, it's cool that they're able to measure that and then hopefully they can replicate it with their robots as well. Definitely. And one thing I want to drive home again, this is a quote from Alexis. I, I just want to get, get it out. She said, I don't believe robot hugs will ever be able to completely replace human hugs. However, much progress we make. But what robots can do is alleviate loneliness and perhaps even improve people's mental health in situations where physical contact is made impossible by distance or illness. So I, I thought it was a great follow-up to what you said about COVID and what it has showed us about being away from the ones we love in moments that really matter. And this really drives the point home. Yeah, it's a, it's a feel-good one. And I'll Definitely. tell you, I always feel powered up after a good long hug with someone that I love. So let's go from being powered up about hugs to being powered up with a new form of energy. And this en form of energy I'm talking about is an artificial leaf. Uh, it's coming out of EPFL. And basically what they've done is they've created a leaf on their own. So they created this leaf in the lab. And the reason they call it a leaf is because the way that leaves turn sunlight into glucose, you know, for their form of energy, mm -hmm. they're finding a way to turn sunlight into fuel that we can use to, you know, burn to for energy or, you know, use in manufacturing and the fuel that they're creating is oxygen. But I kind of want to zoom out and say, why do we care about using sunlight to create fuel at all or to create energy at all? Please do. I, you know me, I am and, horrible at biology and I depend on you for all my bio lessons. So go ahead. Well, basically the premise is, is as long as the sun is burning, uh -huh. right? As long as we've got the sun in the sky, it's one of the most, and you know, in human history, it's the one thing we can depend on is that the sun will come up. Um, as long as that sun's there, we have basically unlimited energy, right? Right. It's, it's giving us so much energy to the earth more than we ever could consume. So we need to find a way to capture that if we want to turn away from 
using fossil fossil fuels, we want to find a new energy using the sun. So they call them solar fuels. Um, and so the traditional way we've done that so far is with photovoltaic cells. That, those are like the solar cells that you'll see solar panels on top of someone's house or out in a solar farm. Um, those are great at turning sunlight into electricity, but their efficiency is only around 20%. Okay. So 80% of that energy from the sun is wasted somewhere in the process. Well, if you look at plants, the way that they conduct photosynthesis, which is how they turn sunlight into glucose, which is energy for themselves, they can do that at over 60% efficiency. So over three times better than these photovoltaic cells that we created and we use as humans, photosynthesis that plants do is three times more efficient. So we're trying to find a way to replicate that in the lab by creating our own types of leaves. So if if plants are already naturally doing that and they're at 60% efficiency, why aren't we using plants? Well, so here's the thing. The solar fuel that plants make mm-hmm. is glucose. Um, that's sugar. So it's really great if you want to grow a bunch of plants and eat them. But what we're looking for is creating a solar fuel that we can use in manufacturing and in energy. And for us, that's oxygen. And when plants conduct photosynthesis, oxygen is only a byproduct. So it's only a small percent of the energy storage from the sun. Most of the energy from the sun is stored in that sugar that they make. So what we're trying to do is make a new type of leaf that is focused specifically on making oxygen. And the reason why is because we use oxygen in manufacturing. We add oxygen to certain types of fuels like jet fuel and rocket fuel. Um, you know, when you're creating steel, you need a ton of oxygen and it's also needed for medical purposes. So it's basically a way for us to alleviate some of our energy consumption from fossil fuels using the sun if we can create oxygen. So, so if I'm understanding you right, the secret sauce here, the approach is to kind of follow along the path that a plant takes to turn the sun's energy into glucose, but do it to turn it into oxygen. Exactly. So they, they're using actually a lot of the same... Uh, technology that is used to create a certain type of solar cells called organic solar cells okay. um, using polymers. So they, they're using a lot of that same technology and a lot of those same materials, but instead of focusing on producing electricity, which has, as we know, some losses in efficiency, mm-hmm. it drops down to around 20%. They're focused on specifically just turning that sunlight and water that they put into the system into oxygen. So that's all they care about is oxygen output because some of these sunlight energy is stored in that oxygen and can be released if you burn it or can be released if you use it for manufacturing. So all they're focusing on is the oxygen. And they were actually able to take this certain type of film called a bulk heterojunction blend, um, okay. which is basically a blend of two different polymers that is used in solar cells uh, to create electricity, but they repurposed it to help produce oxygen. And it basically led to a huge improvement in efficiency, and it's much better than any other organic alternative we've had so far. Basically, we can say it's a huge first step towards using the sun to produce fuel for us um, instead of yanking it out of the ground. Wait, so you said you said it's more efficient. Do you have like numbers on how much more efficient it is? Yeah, so it's almost two orders of magnitude better than any previous organic devices. So that's like over a thousand uh, over a hundred times better than any um you know interesting previous organically based device so it's uh you know better than other things using the same technology but one of the other markers that we want to measure it against is inorganic ones got it um you know using certain types of heavy metal oxides or silicon you know these very heavily engineered metal alternatives um it doesn't quite perform at those levels yet but what they can say is using this uh, organic method, this bulk heterojunction blend, um, 
basically it's much cheaper and much, much easier to produce at scale. Um, so they can basically print it in an inkjet printer, just like the one in your house. They can print sheets and sheets and sheets of this stuff at relatively low cost. So they can make huge panels of this that can help turn water into oxygen fuel. Wow. And, and I know you said they're not using it for photovoltaic cells right now, but since they're making such advancements in this realm, could they kind of go back and be like, well, now that we figured it out, let's make flexible solar panels and put it on, I don't know, other applications? Well, one of the uh, problems with these organic solar cells, and specifically this specific material that they're using, mm-hmm. is it's even lower efficiency at converting sunlight into electricity um, Got it. than the ones we use today. So they actually capped out at around 10% efficiency. Um, and the industry standard now is around 20%. So basically what they've done is found a almost a reject in the organic solar cell community and turned it into something that we can use to replicate photosynthesis. So um, they're getting closer and closer to that 60% efficiency that I talked about that plants can achieve. And they think somewhere on the horizon, if they get much better at this, they can crack 80% efficiency. So wow. that means the sunlight hitting this panel, over 80% of that energy is captured in oxygen fuel that we can use for something else. And you know, they're more aesthetically pleasing. Like I, I might not want a photovoltaic panel in my house, but if you can make some you know, good looking leaves... Uh, I could be kind of more open to that. Get more oxygen yeah, around my surroundings. That'd be nice. They're thin and they're flexible and they're cheaper. It's a, it's an interesting way of replicating what nature has shown us. You know, you know, more biomimicry. Of, yeah, yeah, more biomimicry, more nature-inspired engineering. If the plants do it really well, let's try mimic what they're doing uh, to capture energy from the sun as well. Agreed. Agreed. But let's take a leap from leaves and let's start talking about spinal implants with Article Three. We're going to be looking at non-invasive spinal implants, and here's why. Dan, did you know that 1 in 12 Americans suffer from intractable back pain? What is intractable back pain? My back hurts sometimes. I don't know. I'm glad you asked, Dan, because I didn't know what intractable back pain was until I Googled it. It's basically a pain that there's nothing you can do about it. You can't really treat it. You can't go after the cause of it. You can just kind of address the symptoms. Like imagine like some really, really bad pain that you have. It's not going to go away. The best you can do is live with the pain and just make it a little bit easier for you. Okay. So that, that seems very, very significant. The fact that one in 12 Americans suffer from this pain. I imagine it will only get worse as more people shift to desk jobs and they're sitting all day. Oh yeah. Um, so how do, how do you treat this intractable back pain? I imagine that will lead us towards this article. <laughs> exactly. So this is coming out of the University of Cambridge. Um, I, I think the reason this research was even sparked is because the UK economy is actually spending about 12 billion pounds every year on this. And they were talking about, you know, how it's not just impacting them. It's also impacting Americans. So it must be impacting majority of the developed world as well. And they, they looked at the options into treating this, right? And what it came down to is that spinal stimulation treatments seem to be the main method of treatment. But given how many... And what what is that? Do they just put some type of electrodes in you and give some electrical pulses to help ease the pain around the back? Is that is that what they're doing? Yeah, that's exactly right. They put electrical pads on, on your spinal, um, spinal cord and do electrical signals to stimulate okay. and ease the pain. Okay. But what's interesting about it is given how many cases there are of people that have these issues, there's only about 50,000 procedures per year. 
So they wanted to understand like, why is that the case? And what it boils down to is that there's really two options you have with spinal stimulation. You have one that's very invasive, which involves you going under general anesthesia and then having uh, surgeons cut open your back and put this very long paddle-like electrode down and then being able to stimulate it. And then there's the non-invasive alternative, which covers a smaller portion of your spinal cord, but it doesn't require anesthesia and extensive surgery. So it's really not as effective. Given that knowledge, these researchers wanted to bring together the best of both worlds, non-invasive and covers a lot of area to maximize the effectiveness, right? Totally makes sense. And the way they did this is by taking a page out of different engineering principles. So they're incorporating flexible electronics. Uh, We've talked about this before on the show, like we have flexible sensors and things like that for body monitoring. So it can bend. They're bringing in soft materials from soft robotics. That's where you can stimulate a material. Again, it can unroll, deform, change shape without really giving up any of its material properties. And they're incorporating microfluidic channels, um, little channels that you can pass fluids like oxygen or a liquid like water through it to expand the shape itself. And the way I like to think about this is, you know, those airplane safety guides they have the inflatable ramps that eventually turn into boats yeah imagine you putting the fluid in and then it unrolls and they're using that exact same principle for this device that is only 60 microns thick like think about as as thin as a single uh single fiber of your hair that's how thin it is okay they roll it up they put it in a needle and they inject it in your epidural region and once it's in the surgeons can inflate it so that it can actually start covering your entire sp- spinal region and unroll into the paddle shape that they, they really want. Okay. So they – let me see if I've got this right. Okay. They've, they're using – you know, barring from different types of engineering, the flexible electronics is that the electrode that they're using itself is flexible and they can roll it up and unroll it without it being damaged. You're right. Um, you know, the microfluidic channels is what you're talking about, how they can inflate it and it unrolls itself. Mm-hmm. So basically they've got this – tiny thing that fits inside a needle they inject it into a certain part of your spine and they can inflate it and it turns into the electrode that they would have had to cut you open to install but in- instead they only had to poke a needle hole in your back instead of cutting you open you're exactly right and w- what's wonderful about this is that it's it's actually so small and so thin that the surgeons the way they detect that the device is fully implemented implemented is through an x-ray and the x-ray wasn't able to show the device because of how thin and small it is. So they actually had to, they had to add bismuth elements to make it stand out. But um, they, they've tested this out on cadavers, and they, they know it works. In the next two to three years, they want to do human trials. And the, the, the lead researcher mentioned that due to the architecture, the way they've gone about designing this system, you can actually make changes to it to do different things like spinal uh, simulation for people that have spinal injuries, or they even mentioned something about Parkinson's treatments. So again, this is like one of those topics where it's like, this is the first step in, in a much bigger picture that we'll learn more about in the years to come. But kudos to the team, because this device is again, non-invasive, it's scalable, it can be mass manufactured. And so far they've been able to demonstrate that it actually does work. So in the next two to three years, those one in 12 Americans that are suffering from really, really severe pain might have a feasible option of being able to live with it a little bit easier. 
Yeah, that's that's really exciting to me. And I think technology development goes in the cycles where first we prove the concept. Mm-hmm. So, you know, spinal cord stimulation works and it helps, but it's not that pretty, right? It requires, you know, putting someone under general anesthetics, you have to cut them open. It's pretty invasive. It's harmful. It's hurt. It's hurtful. You know, it's not that appealing to you as a patient, but we're starting to get to this point where this technology develops further and they start to care more about the patient experience and making sure that it leaves them healthy and happy. And this is a really exciting application of new technology to me because, you know, instead of treating only 50,000, which is just a fraction of those millions of Americans every year that are experiencing this back pain, it will hopefully be accessible to many more of them because it's not a scary procedure anymore. Agreed. Well, I think we'll wrap up this episode here. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in for episode 26. If you've made it to this end, the end of this episode, we'd like to ask you a favor. If you could just go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review on there, and send us proof, we'll shout you out. But really, the reason why we want to give you a shout out to thank you is because it's one of the best ways you can help our podcast grow. And we've been hearing from a lot of you in these reviews, and we look forward to hearing from more of you. If you can just take a second to hop on over to Apple Podcasts and drop us that review. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by WeWelver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit WeWelver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.